Wonderful. Okay, can you, uh, can you all hear me? Hear me all right? Excellent, okay. Um, if you want to open up your Bibles, then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10 today as we continue our series uh, on, the, on the Lord's Prayer. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. Wonderful. So let's read it together, shall we? Uh, Let's say it all together. Chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Lord God, I pray that as I bring the word today that you would help me to preach it as it is, Lord God, and without any colouring of my own ideology, but to bring it forward as you meant it to be. And we pray, Lord God, that as we hear the word, that our hearts would be transformed by what you are saying. We recognise that we worship a living God who speaks to us today. So, Lord, prepare our hearts, we pray, and move amongst this community. In the name of Jesus, amen. Today we are looking at the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Now whereas the first petition, which was, Hallowed be your name, as the first petition related to God and his glorification of himself in the earth, so these two petitions that we study this afternoon relate outwards. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. These two petitions are directed outwardly to the world around us. I want you to notice the flow here. The first petition relates to God. The second two relate outwards to the world, to our neighbors. And then the final three petitions of the Lord's Prayer relate to us personally, to our needs, to our needs and desires as people. I think the order is very important. It sort of follows, doesn't it, the flow of the greatest commandment that Jesus mentions in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. There again, we see that flow top down, God, your neighbors and yourself. And that is the order in which we pray with Jesus through the Lord's prayer. So what is it to pray, your kingdom come? What does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? Is it that God's kingdom isn't yet here? And that we, in praying for it to come, are praying that he might become king? That he might begin to rule? Are we praying for the kingdom of God's arrival? Or... Is it that we're praying for the day when Christ returns and his rule will be consummated and completed? He will rule perfectly both in heaven and in the earth. Is that what we're praying for when we pray your kingdom come? I think it's important to find out what Jesus meant by those words, your kingdom come. 
The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a catechism we regularly read from on Sundays, addresses this petition in question number one, two, three. The question is, what does the second petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? The answer is this. Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve your church and make it grow. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Jesus, when he spoke about the kingdom, he spoke about it both as being now in the present moment, but yet also not yet. He spoke about the kingdom in those two ways. It's here, it's now, it's within, it's in your midst. And he also spoke about it in his parables as being yet to come. That it hasn't yet fully arrived and broken in. However, when we find this, sorry, rather when we, when we see him talking about the ultimate fulfillment of his kingdom, we also notice that the, the prophets wrote about this too. In the books of Daniel and in the books of Revelation, what we call the apocalyptic books, the revelatory books of Scripture, we see this pattern of the kingdom coming at the end of the age. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Daniel 7. You know how Jesus always called himself the Son of Man? The Son of Man? And atheists will often say, or Muslims will often say, see, he never called himself the Son of God. That's you Christians who've written that in. He called himself the son of man. He wasn't claiming to be God. He was just claiming to be a normal person. Well, not according to Daniel chapter 7. He wasn't. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 reads like this. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hallelujah. When Jesus claimed to be the son of man, he was claiming to be that son of man in Daniel 7. The one who receives a kingdom. And the Jews knew that. They knew that. That's why they were so concerned with what Jesus was preaching. Did you ever think that? Did you ever wonder that? You know, if what the Muslims say is true, that he never claimed to be God, then why did the Jews kill him? Why did the Jews kill him? Because they recognized he was claiming to be the son of man, the one who will inherit the kingdom from the ancient of days. Revelation 11 and chapter 15, sorry, chapter 11, verse 15 rather, says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're talking about the last things 
We're talking about eschatology, the study of the end times. And there will be a full consummation, yes, of Christ's rule and reign in those end times. But that doesn't mean to say his kingdom isn't here right now in this building too. The kingdom is both now and not yet. How do we define it? How do we put a definition on the kingdom of God then? I think it's simply this. It's the rule of God over his creation as king. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over all of his creation as king. Psalm 2 nicely sums this up. Psalm 2 is a a psalm um, that follows Psalm 1 and it has this picture in it of a king reigning in glory over all of the kings of the earth. I want you to listen to Psalm 2. It's powerful, it's scary. That's why I love what Bucky chose today as our confession, the Belgic confession, which, which said we have no need to tremble and fear. We might read that these days and think, well, I, I, I've never trembled and feared that Jesus is Lord. Why should I do that? Because we've grown up in church. We recognize that he loves us. But when we read Psalm 2, we understand why it is that if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, that you have every right to tremble. You have every right to fear. Let's read it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do you take refuge in the Lord's anointed today? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. For his wrath is kindled quickly. This is what the Bible says about the king who sits upon the throne of heaven and who does rule. He does rule today. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray for him to rule as king. Now, here, in our hearts. It's not that we're praying that God might become king because we know, brothers and sisters, he already is. He doesn't need our help with that one. He's figured that one out. He is king. He needs no help. He's ruling now. What we're praying is that the world might know that he's king. In fact, Augustine, Augustine used this imagery to describe what this prayer means, thy kingdom come, when he said, 
We know the light by our eyes. We see it. But how does the blind person know about the light? What does the blind person know of it? Well, they know less. They know less about how light looks when it refracts through all these windows and and bounces off all the walls and, and makes things look certain colors. They know less because they can't see. So how does one know that God is king? By having their eyes opened. By having the blindness of sin taken off of them. That's how they know. That's how it's revealed to them. It's not that God isn't king. He is king. It's that the world can't see it because of spiritual blindness. And when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying for the scales of sin to fall off people's eyes, much like they did for the apostle Paul. You remember when the Lord called him and Ananias, the the brother, prayed for him and the scales fell off and he could see. This, This is a picture of what we pray for with thy kingdom come is that the world might acknowledge the king who does sit on the throne. And also that we might. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but even though I know in my heart, I know I'm saved, I know I trust in Jesus, in my heart there are certain dark recesses that still don't quite fully acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. Any of you? Or is it just me? But I know that there are areas of my heart where I don't fully yet acknowledge Christ as Lord. And we also pray thy kingdom come for us and our hearts, that more and more, that spiritual blindness, that that kind of, that indwelling sin that's being cast out from us as we walk with him, we're praying that we might see him as king, see him as Lord, acknowledge him as ruler over our hearts of every area. See, the Lord does reign, doesn't he? Amen. The Lord does reign whether we like it or not. But we want to know it in this life. That's the coming of the kingdom of God is a recognition of what Psalm 115 says, that he is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. It's a recognition of God as king. It's the inbreaking of his kingdom into our hearts. The inbreaking of his kingdom into the lives of others out in the world. We're praying for his reign to be established and increased. Specifically, that that rule might increase in our hearts and in the hearts of men and women in this city of Wolverhampton, in this region, in this nation, we're praying for people's eyes to be opened to the truth that there is a king on the throne. There's a king on the throne. His name is love. His name is love, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isaiah 9, 7 is a verse we often go to at Christmas, but I love it and it fits well with today's passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In praying for God's kingdom to come, our Lord is commanding us. He's commanding us, not just suggesting, but commanding us to pray that sinners might be saved. I love what Spurgeon said about this. This this is the heart that I want to have. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my praying, I just, I feel so kind of cold in my heart. I want to be more like this. Listen to this, what Spurgeon said. 
about praying for sinners. He said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. I want that kind of desire in my heart when I pray for the lost. I don't know how many of you have studied revival in this room today, but what's always stuck out to me is that whenever God has lit the fires of revival in his church, you know what? He's always, always set one or two people on fire for prayer. That's what he's always done. That's always the pattern. He sets one or two believers on fire to pray. We talk with my mum sometimes about the Hebridean revival in the, the Scottish islands. She's from Scotland and remembers some Gaelic speakers who had come over from the islands and experienced this revival. But this great move of God where people came to Christ in their droves didn't start with a magnificent preacher. Yes, that came, but it began with two old women who decided they were going to give their evenings late into the night to prayer and specifically prayer for the lost that God might save sinners. In the last few years I've become a student of the Welsh revival where God touched a young miner called Evan Roberts. I don't know how many of you have been down there to Moriah Chapel. I know we've got a few Welshies in the room. Um, but it is a, a place that invokes the fear of God on my, uh, in my life. I've stood in the place, me and Pete went down there, stood in the place where Evan began to pray. The hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And the Lord touched this man to pray for the lost, not to give up, not to grow weary. He used to preach to men coming out of the mines. And in no less than six months, that church in a strange and obscure part of Swansea was filled with miners, with tear tracks over their black, coal-muddied faces, weeping their way to Jesus. A hundred thousand people were saved in the space of a year. They were baptizing people in the rivers in winter. But it began with prayer. It began with thy kingdom come. I want you to read a, well, listen rather to this quote. This is a, a man called James E. Stewart who was there at the Welsh Revival. And he says this, it was praying that rent the heavens, praying that received direct answers there and then. The spirit of intercession was so mightily poured out that the whole congregation would take part simultaneously for hours. Imagine that. Strangers were startled to hear the young and unlettered pray with such unction and intelligence as they were swept up to the throne of grace by the Spirit of God. Worship and adoration was unbounded. Praise began to mingle with the petitions as answered prayer was demonstrated before their eyes. Often when unsaved loved ones were the focus of the intercession, they would be compelled to come to the meeting that very hour and be saved. Wow. 
That's what it is to pray thy kingdom come, brothers and sisters. What would it look like? Imagine, what would it look like if we really did see the kingdom of God come powerfully in this time? Paul said it would be like righteousness, peace, and joy, didn't he? The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What would it look like to be ruled and governed by righteousness, peace, and joy? Those are three commodities in short supply in this dark world, aren't they? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Secondly, when we pray thy kingdom come, brothers and sisters, we pray for the ultimate return of Christ, the consummation of his kingdom. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, the penultimate one, where it reads this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, as we see his kingdom grow and manifest on the earth, we get a longing in us, don't we, to see more of it. I think that the kingdom of God sometimes grows the most in the darkest times in the kingdom of men. At the darkest and most hopeless times in this old world is when the kingdom of God breaks out in power. Think about it. Where is the fastest growth of the church in the world? In China, in India, in the places where you face the death penalty for converting is where the Lord God is building his church. Iran, these are the places where it's darkest, where the kingdom of God is breaking out the most powerfully. And that's why we should be excited, brothers and sisters, that things are getting rocky here. Whenever they get rocky is when the Lord begins to break out in power. Amen? Is the time when we as Christians can get hopeful that we're going to see more of his kingdom come. I'm reminded, I don't know how many of you love C.S. Lewis's books, Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, but this reminds me of when uh, Susan, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy are sat in the house of the beavers, and the beavers begin to talk about this lion called Aslan, and they get excited about him. I want you to listen to this, because this is the essence of what it is to pray for the return of Christ, to be excited about it. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white witch all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in the old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. I love that. 
This is the excitement that we as believers ought to have in prayer when we think of the Lord Jesus coming back. The third petition I'm going to focus on is the final one, and I'm going to begin to wrap up now, is thy will be done, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. This one is closely related to the other petition, thy kingdom come. They're like two peas in the same pod, but, but what is meant, brothers and sisters, by God's will? What does it mean to pray, thy will be done? If he's God, does he need help getting his will done? Is it that he can't get his will done without our prayers? What's being asked of us by the Lord here? There are actually about eight different ways that the Bible talks about the will of God. Eight different ways. That's not to say that God has eight separate wills or that he's confused. Sometimes I know when I head into Sainsbury's with a shopping list, I have around eight different wills and I become confused and disorientated. But God is not like me. God's will is simple in the sense that it is one. It's unified. He's not confused. The reason why we define His will, and we see eight different expressions of it in Scripture, is because He's God. Because He's God. And we shouldn't be surprised that defining Him takes some doing. He is infinite. We are finite. His mind knows no bounds. Our minds do. This is why it takes some doing to define the will of God. One pastor who I like to listen to described trying to define God like trying to wrap your arms around one of those great redwoods that you find out in the western coast of America. You can't ever fully embrace the tree. You can't reach around the other side and touch your fingers. But you can get a real sense of what that tree is like, can't you? You can feel it. You feel the bark. You can sense how great and big it is. You can smell it. Your senses know something solid about this tree, and it's the same when we're doing theology. We're never going to be able to fully grasp everything about God because He's infinite, but through His Word and through the person of Jesus, we can get a true and sufficient knowledge about God. So we're able to say that He is good. We're able to tell you that He's love. We're able to say that He saves sinners because He's revealed it to us. So when we talk about God's will, thy will be done, what will are we meaning? What's being asked here? Theologians talk about God in, God's will in a number of ways, and I'll just list three to you, three possible understandings of what's meant by thy will be done. The first will of God that could be meant here is what theologians call the decretive will of God. Decretive will. Decretive meaning decrees, okay? That whatever God ordains, okay? Whatever God ordains, that's what's meant by the decretive will of God. We know from Scripture that this means that he has a plan. You ever heard that phrase, God has a plan? Yeah? This is his decretive will. It's what God plans to come about. This side of God's will is obviously hidden from us. We don't know it the same way that we know other parts of God's will. 
The only way we find out what God's plan is sometimes is by living life and things happen to us and we find out what the decretive will of God was. We find it out through the passing of time. Let me give you an example from Psalm 139 verse 16, one of our favorite Psalms. It says this, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So every single one of the days of your life is already numbered and written in God's book before ever there was one. Now, that's the decretive will of God. He has decreed a number of days for each of you. We don't know what they are. We don't know what he's got planned for us. We can't like Pete and Pippa. The start of the year, if you ask them what they'd be doing, I don't know if they'd have said we'll be relocating. But therein is the decretive will of God. He knew, he planned, he purposed. And here we are. We find out what that will is in the moment. Is it possible to thwart this will or does it not happen sometimes? It doesn't seem to be that way. Scripture talks about God's purposes as always being fulfilled. He sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. The second type of will that theologians talk about is God's will of disposition. And that really speaks about what he, he prefers or what pleases him. For example, in Ezekiel 33:11. It says this, say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from the evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There's a sense in which the Lord really doesn't like it when, he, when sinners sin. He wants them to repent. That, that's what's called God's will of disposition. It doesn't please him that people are rebellious. The third type of God's will that theologians will talk about is called his preceptive will. That's what God commands. It's his uh, precepts. It's his law. And it's this side of God's will that's revealed to us by the scriptures, by the Ten Commandments, by the law of God in the Old Testament. And it isn't hidden from us. It's revealed to us. It isn't like the decretive will of God where we only find out about it through the passage of time. We can read about it in our Bibles. So which will of God are we praying might be done? Is it even necessary to ask this question, I wonder? Sometimes I don't know. But I think it's necessary. Uh, this, is, this is what I think we ought to be doing, is asking questions of the Bible. Are we praying that God's decretive will, what he has planned, might come about? Are we praying that maybe it's possible he might not get his own way and that we need to pray in order that God would be able to accomplish his purposes in the earth? Or are we praying for God's commands that they might be obeyed by people, by us? I think the final line of this verse gives us a clue. On earth as in heaven. We know that God already does all that he pleases both in heaven and on the earth, in the sense of his plan. Daniel chapter 4, again, one of my favorite books of the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, has been cast out by God into the wilderness and turned into a half kind of human where he's a beast and he's eating the grass of the field. And in the end, he repents, his mind is renewed, and he has this wonderful uh, exhortation of praise at the end of Daniel chapter 4 and he says this all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing 
and he does all according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done none can thwart the purposes of God Paul says in Ephesians 1:11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will so that doesn't seem to fit with on earth as in heaven does it what will of God is done perfectly in heaven, but not perfectly on earth? Well, surely it's his commands. It's his precepts, which are constantly violated on the earth because of sin, because of failure, because of brokenness. God's commands are fully obeyed in heaven, are they not? By his angels, his ministering spirits. But here on earth as humans, we, we all fall short in that respect. Sam Storms, uh, the commentator, said this. He said, It is our prayer then, therefore, that what God has declared should happen in his precepts does happen. That's what thy will be done is. It's, Lord, let your righteous, perfect, holy commandments and precepts be obeyed on earth as in heaven. Lord, as your kingdom comes and it begins to dawn in our hearts and the rule of Jesus comes into every area of our lives and we pray it might come into the lives of thousands in the city of Wolverhampton. Lord, we pray at the same time, let us treat your commands as righteous and holy and give us grace to be obedient to them every day. That's the prayer, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, that there be a greater obedience to God's commandments, a greater reverence and awe of all that he says. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, what does the third petition mean? Your will be done on earth as in heaven. It means this, help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any talk back. I like that. Without any chat, back. How many times do you say that to your own kids? Don't back chat me. This is what we're praying, that we would not back chat God, that we would obey his precepts. Your will alone is good. Help us, one and all, to carry out the work we're called to do as willingly and faithfully as the angels who are in heaven. I want to leave you with this question. Who is able to obey the commands of God? Who's able? I want to put it to you this way. Only those who have the Lord Jesus reigning as king in their hearts and have received the Holy Spirit, only those will have any desire to do the will of God on earth. My question is this, who sits on the throne of your heart today? Are there areas of your life where you know you are still trying to push Jesus off the throne? You're still attempting to be your own sovereign ruler. Submit to his reign today. Pray, Lord, let your kingdom come in my life. Let your will be done today. And I also want 
for us as a church to be inspired, to be in awe of what God has done throughout the ages through this simple prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if we will commit as a church to pray this prayer, use it as a model. You don't have to always recite it word for word, but use it as a model if we will take it seriously and take names into the prayer chamber or whatever room we pray in and begin to say, your kingdom come in this individual's life, in that individual's life. Your kingdom come in my school, in my place of work, in my city. Brothers and sisters, what's possible? What is possible when we take this prayer to heart? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as well. Oh Lord God, we come to you this afternoon grateful that you've given us your son. Jesus Christ. And through his perfect sacrifice, you've made it possible for us to know you. Not just as a king, but as father, as friend, and the Lord Jesus Christ as brother, as well as redeemer. And we pray, Lord God, that your kingdom might come even more in our lives today. And that as it does, Lord God, that we would receive strength and grace to be obedient to your will, not to kick back, not to back chat, but to accept that your will is good and perfect and wholesome. Lord, as a church, we pray that we'd be used of you in this hour, in this nation, to see your kingdom break in all the more. Strengthen us in prayer this week, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.